Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their works, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. Club Book is made possible by Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, MELSA, and Library Strategies. We would like to thank our media sponsors at Minnesota Public Radio and MinPost.com for helping us get the word out about our great guest authors. This podcast features Meg Wade Clayton at Carver County's Chanhassen Library. A book club favorite, Meg Wade Clayton is the author of five novels. Her 2002 debut, The Language of Light, was a finalist for that year's Bellwether Prize for Fiction. She gained national recognition when her 2007 follow-up, The Wednesday Sisters, landed spots on both the New York Times and USA Today bestseller lists. Entertainment Weekly named it one of its 25 essential best friend novels of all time. Clayton has also penned articles for a wide range of publications, including Writer's Digest, The Los Angeles Times, and Runner's World. Her newest book, about female reporters in the closing days of World War II in Europe, hit shelves in August. Involving and thoroughly researched, The Race for Paris will draw women's fiction readers as well as historical fiction and World War II devotees, according to Booklist. For this podcast, Clayton makes use of slides in her discussion, which can be found at clubbook.org slash podcasts. And now, Meg Wade Clayton. Uh, I'm really delighted to be here. I have not been back to Minnesota in a long time, but I grew up in the, uh, most, I grew up all over the place, but mostly in the Chicago area. And when I was in high school, I used to come up here uh, both in the summertime to canoe and camp and in the wintertime to ski. Um, I was telling Pamela, who's been driving me around, and Tim, who was also driving me around, that um, we used to set off from Chicago, north of Chicago, but still at, uh, you know, five on a Saturday morning when I was in high school, come up here and ski until, you know, they shut us down and then drive back and get back home at, you know, three in the morning or something. So I was much younger then, and this is a much more civilized way to see Minnesota. <laughs> um, uh, Amelia, uh, we're, Amelia, thank you so much for the lovely introduction, um, and thanks everybody, Terry, and everybody who is involved in Club Book. Um, it's really uh, what a lovely thing that you guys bring authors from all over the country to, to speak to your libraries. Um, I'm from Palo Alto, California, and uh, our libraries don't do anything this swanky, even though we have a lot of money, so I'm going to go back and talk to them about that. <laughs> um, 
Uh, I also want to uh, thank one other person who's here, which is uh, Pamela Klingerhorn. Uh, Pamela uh, is a, a bookseller, and one of the things she did was she, one of the things that booksellers get to do is they get copies of books before they're published, and they get to read them, and the ones they like the best they recommend for something called the Indie Next List. Uh, and it's the independent booksellers' uh, choice of the books that they are most looking forward to hand-selling this season. And um, thanks to Pamela and a whole bunch of really nice booksellers like her, I'm on the, in the Race for Paris is on the Indie Next List for September, which is very exciting for me. First time I've ever made that list. So that's very fun. And as a result <laughs> and as a result of uh, bookseller support, I just learned uh, yesterday that uh, the book is now a national bestseller. So I'm very excited about that. <laughs> All right. Um, so uh, let me start with a show of hands. Uh, how many of you are pretty sure you're not crazy? <laughs> <laughs> All right, so there's a Nora Ephron quote that I like to share to kind of explain my writing life, and it is, uh, insane people are always sure they're fine. It's only the sane people who are willing to admit that they're crazy. So I'm definitely sane because I'm willing to admit that I've been working on this particular novel, The Race for Paris, for 15 years. Uh, in fairness, I've written uh, three other novels in the time that I've been writing this one, and I've published four other novels in the time that I've uh, published this one, which, if you do the math, will tell you that I started write writing this one before my first novel was published, and that is true. Um, this is the one I kept going back to, the one I obsessed over, and, and really the one I honestly love most of any of my books. Uh, so I cannot tell you how delighted I am to be here talking to you about it uh, and to have it be in readers' hands and to start hearing from readers. Um, so The Race for Paris is the story of uh, two World War II journalists who arrive in Normandy in June of 1944. Uh, they join forces with a British military photographer and uh, they race their fellow journalists toward Paris hoping to be the first to report the liberation of the city. It's a novel, but it's based on real women journalists who covered the war uh, and a whole lot of research, which was part of that 15 years. Uh, it includes some trips to Paris, so you can imagine that I needed to hurry through that part of it. <laughs> um, so I'm gonna talk a little bit about the journalists who inspired the novel uh, and some of the places it will take uh, readers. I'm not gonna talk about these women in particular, except the one on the left, the one on the far left in the little helmet there, that's Ruth Cowan. Um, but I love the way this photo captures the spirit of these women um, as individuals, uh, but even more importantly, as friends. Uh, that's what part of what I'm exploring in The Race for Paris, how very important their support for each other was as they were making their way through the war. Uh, so these women, being accredited war correspondents, were, of course, not exactly allowed to cover the war. Because, anybody want to guess? They were, they were women, exactly. <laughs> so I'm gonna talk about what they did do in order to be able to cover the war, what, rules, uh, what the rules were and how they broke them uh, and why. Uh, but first, let me interrupt this uh, presentation for an emergency message about what libraries and librarians have meant to me. And I must warn you that some viewers may be very disturbed by what they're about to see. That's me at the Sierra Madre Library circa 1970. Uh, I'm, I'm 11 here. I'm already into the second year of braces on my disastrously crooked teeth. Uh, and I'm just to go, about to go on that most horrible of shopping trips for a girl not yet in the sixth grade. Anybody want to guess that one? <laughs> to buy my first bra. 
We'd moved to LA for uh, six months into a neighborhood where there were no children, uh, so I was left to the uh, mercy of my four brothers and the company of books. Um, what I did most mornings that, uh, that summer was I rode down to my public library and I checked out books. Uh, and I brought them home and I read them. Now here's the thing, that library, they were having a contest that summer and all you had to do to win was read the most books. So of course, the books that I chose were the short ones that I could read a lot of. <laughs> I was very type A even then. Um, but then what happened was the librarians there saw this uh, little girl who was reading up a storm. It turned out that I read three times as many books as anybody else. <laughs> so I didn't need to be reading the short books. Uh, and they started putting more meaningful books in my hands. Things like A Wrinkle in Time and To Kill a Mockingbird. And uh, in reading those books, I started imagining myself as a writer. I will tell you that uh, three years later, I'm in the eighth grade, uh, and I was asked to stay after school. We'd moved back to Chicago, where I mostly grew up. Um, and uh, I was a good student, but not always a well-behaved student. And the last time before this that I'd been asked to stay after was because I had been talking with my friend Colleen Gibbons during the spelling test. Uh, but what Mrs. Johnson wanted to tell me uh, that day was uh, that she'd really enjoyed a poem I'd written, and she wanted to, to encourage me to submit it. Uh, and so I did that. I submitted it for publication to the only publication that I knew published poetry, which was Seventeen Magazine. Well, I'll tell you, they rejected it. Turns out that Seventeen Magazine publishes poems by Pulitzer Prize winners and not generally 14-year-old girls writing in purple ink on lined paper. <laughs> but I want you to notice I got an A-plus up there, right? Uh, it was 20 years before I ever submitted anything again. Uh, so I want to tell you, if you want to write or do anything creative, don't follow that path. Okay, so on to Paris. Uh, I want to start by saying that, like so many war stories, the race for Paris is in part a love story. And the reason I want to start by saying that is because I've done about probably 30 or 40 radio shows now in the last few months, and it occurs to me every time I hang up the phone, because a lot of them are done by, by phone, that I forget to say that this isn't just all about war. There's actually some fun stuff in this book. It's a, it's a love story. Um, I love the history part of it, uh, and I find myself talking about that a lot because I get to share these nifty photos you're going to see. Uh, but the main characters uh, in the novel are two women and one man, so you can guess where that goes. Uh, the characters are uh, the main, the, the, where the story started was with the character of Liv Harper. She's a photojournalist and she's exactly the kind of woman who you imagine might be uh, showing up to report World War II at a time before women, uh, women did. Uh, she uh, is ambitious, she's happily married or thinks she is, uh, and she comes to Normandy intent on being where the action is, happy to break the rules and uh, do whatever is needed to, to um, be done in order to get her job, to do her job. Uh, Fletcher, who's my one male uh, main character, is a British military photographer with a tendency to fall in love with the wrong woman. Uh, and then the third character is a character named Jane Tyler. Uh, Jane is a Nashville gal from the wrong side of the tracks uh, who sort of backs into being a war journalist, uh, and she's the narrator of the story. I will tell you that Jane started out as a very small player. She disappeared after the end of chapter two in, in the early versions of the, of the book. Um, and she started out as a small homage to my Aunt Annette. Um, my Aunt Annette was with the Red Cross in Normandy, and um, when I asked her, you know, how'd she get to, to Normandy, uh, what she said was, well, I'd been, 
I'm going to spare you my southern accent, but she's from the south. So. Uh, I've been teaching school for seven years when the last bachelor left for war, and I didn't want to be an old maid. So she figured she better get over there and find you know, a husband where the boys were. Uh, and so that's a little bit how uh, my character of Jane gets to war. She actually um, backs, she backs into it. She's a, a secretary at the Nashville Banner when the war begins. And then as the men go off to war, including some of the journalists, uh, there are openings and they need reporters. And so she is asked to step up to that. And then when um, one of the things that happened in the war was the big city papers started sending women journalists over to cover the women's angle. And so what happens to Jane is her, uh, the, the wife of the owner of the newspaper she works for decides that uh, the banner ought to have a big city, uh, ought to have a, a woman journalist, a woman war lady war correspondent, like the big city papers had. And so she nominates Jane, and that's how Jane gets there. And I'll tell you the funny thing about this is, as befitting uh, any character modeled on my Aunt Annette, she, of course, took over the narration of the story at some point. And that's when everything. Um, started falling into place. So basically, journalism, war, uh, Race for Paris is also like, how many of you have read earlier books of mine? Yeah, a lot. So, and how many of you have read this one? So like, like all my stories, it's uh, about the importance of friendship um, and an exploration of the restrictions that society puts on women. Uh, a radio host uh, recently noted that it's also an underdog story, and I want you to know, and he said, and who doesn't love an underdog story? And I want you to know that I did refrain from saying, uh, it's a story about women, duh, of course it's an underdog story. <laughs> so I came across the term The Race for Paris in a book by Andy Rooney. You guys know him from 60 Minutes? Yeah, well, he wrote for the Stars and Stripes during the war. He's like, I was actually a pretty good war journalist, believe it or not. Uh, and he describes it as a spirited competition, kind of all in good fun, among the journalists in Normandy about who would be the first to report the liberation of Paris. Um, and this is a, a drawing done by uh, Floyd Davis at a Paris bar after liberation. It's actually the bar that was in the basement of the, uh, the uh, hotel that was the press camp during, uh, during Paris. Uh, and it is uh, all the journalists, and all these people depicted here are journalists, uh, arguing about who was first into Paris. As you can imagine, they all came in from different places, and so it's a little hard to say who actually won the race for Paris, but that's the race for Paris. Uh, a few faces you might uh, recognize here, the one on the bottom right, the greeny guy on the bottom right, anybody know who that is? Ernest Hemingway. He was there as a war correspondent, and I'll, and I'll come to that. But the other thing you might notice here is mm, not a lot of women, right? But it's the women I'm most interested in, so that's who the Race for Paris focuses on, two fictional uh, journalists, both women, who are inspired by some real-life ones, like this is, I like to say, save the best for first. This is Martha Gellhorn. Um, you can see from the top left corner there, if you can read it, that she is an accredited war correspondent. She was uh, one of the early women accredited to cover the war uh, in, late, in November of 1943. Um, she wrote in a letter shortly after she was issued this credential, I would give anything to be part of the invasion and see Paris right at the beginning and watch the peace. And what I love about that is that equation of see Paris right at the beginning and watch the peace, as if Paris would mean that the war was over. Liberating Paris would mean the war was over. In fact, the war went on for almost a, for a year after Paris was liberated, but there was this sense that if we could liberate Paris, then that would be a major turning point and we would win the war. And that, you, you see that in, in 
all, everything that you read about, about the war when you focus on Paris. Uh, but so Martha's credential only got her as far as England. Uh, no women were allowed to cover the D-Day invasion uh, or to go to Normandy during the early days. Uh, that job was left to men like Ernest Hemingway, who happened to be Martha's husband at the time. Uh, being the great husband he was, uh, for the beginning part of the war, while Martha was trying to get to, to the war, uh, he stayed in Cuba, at their home in Cuba. And uh, then when he couldn't convince her to come home and take care of him after she started covering the war, he decided he would come cover the war after all, and he decided the job he wanted was uh, the spot of lead correspondent at Collier's Magazine, uh, which just happened to be Martha's job until Ernest took it from her. So Ernest heads off for the invasion troops, uh, with the invasion troops, which in fairness, Martha would not have been able to do anyway because she was a woman. But this is what Martha did. She stowed away in the loo of a hospital ship to get to France, the first hospital ship that went over. Uh, and I wanted you to focus on that, on the, the loo. You're gonna be surprised at how often bathrooms play a role in this little presentation of mine. <laughs> So she went over on a hospital ship and went ashore with an ambulance crew, uh, and she became one of the very few reporters and the only woman to cover the uh, landings from France as opposed to, say, from a boat off the shore of France, which is where Ernest Hemingway covered the war. If you read his war coverage, it sounds like he went ashore, but actually not so much. So uh, does anybody want to guess what uh, Martha Gellhorn's reward for her bravery was? She was stripped of her military accreditation, her travel papers, and her ration entitlements uh, on returning to England and confined to a nurse's training camp where she was expected to be shipped back to the US. But being Martha Gellhorn, she hopped the fence, uh, hitched a ride on a plane to Italy, and covered the rest of the war without the benefit of that swanky military credential she just saw, which you just saw, which meant that she had to uh, beg wireless operators to send off her, her work to her publication, uh, thereby getting them to break the rules for her, and all the while looking over her shoulder for the military police who were charged with apprehending her and sending her back to the States. Uh, and Martha went on to cover Vietnam, the Middle East, and even the invasion of Panama, which she did at the age of 81. She's really uh, one of the unknown stories of, uh, of journalism in America. She's one of the finest war journalists we ever had. Uh, so when you look at that bit of Martha Gellhorn, she seems sort of superhuman. Um, but if you peek behind the curtain, you learn that, can I ask, I'm gonna say I asked this question in, in other places and I was astonished with how few. Did any of you all uh, take fortnightly dance classes when you were in school? Hmm. Thank you, Kim. <laughs> so maybe it was a Chicago thing, but when I was in middle school, uh, we signed up for ballroom dancing classes. And what that meant was that, you know, uh, 50 girls and three boys <laughs> would go to the gym every other Saturday night and learn to dance. Uh, maybe it wasn't Saturday night, I don't know. But, and so, you, as you can imagine, since the boys are the ones who are asked to dance, you know, the girls stand around the edge of the gym, and the couple of boys go and pick a couple of girls, and then the rest of the girls dance together. Uh, so, what I learned about Martha Gilhorn is she went to Fort Knightley, but she was so horrified at the idea of all these boys passing by her that she and her best friend hid in the coat room so they wouldn't have to dance. Uh, so when I read that about her, it just made her so much more human to me than this superhuman woman who goes off at 81 to cover the invasion of Panama. And that's one of the things I want to do in the Race for Paris, is I want to deliver how very human and like the rest of us, these women who 
these women really were. Uh, I'm not saying they didn't do extraordinary things, of course they did, but I think part of it was who they were, but part of it was the circumstances of the war, and I think in any kind of war uh, situation, normal people rise to the occasion, and I like to think that even if I might not have been brave enough to do it um, myself, that some of my friends and certainly all of my readers would be. So when we think of World War II correspondents, we think of them as sort of going wherever they want and writing about it or taking photos or whatever. Uh, but in fact, they're all accredited to a certain military group, say the US First Army. Um, they mostly slept and ate in press camps where there were twice da daily briefings. So they'd go to the morning briefing, they'd figure out where the war was, they'd go off to um, cover the fighting, take their pictures, write their, bring, come back, write their stories, uh, and uh, drink and play poker together. Um, so that's what the men did. Uh, and the men were allowed to go pretty much wherever they wanted. But among the many things that the women weren't allowed to do uh, when they were covering World War II, they were forbidden to go to the press camps. They were by and large accredited to cover the Red Cross nurses and the um, Donut Girls, uh, and they were uh, forbidden to go anywhere near the front, anywhere near the press camps. So anybody want to guess the reason why they were forbidden to go to the press camps? I'll give you a hint. I told you we were going to talk about it a lot. This is a pissoir, which is the kind of public toilet that was on the street corners of Paris during the war. And the stated reason that women were not allowed in the press camps was that there were no women's latrines there, and they weren't about to start digging them now. So here's the thing about the, that latrine excuse. The press camps in Normandy or in France were by and large in places like this very nice hotel in Paris. It's called the Scribe. It's now a five-star Sofitel, and it wasn't exactly a dump during World War II. Uh, it had been the Nazi communication center in Paris before the Allies marched in. But that's Paris, right? And Normandy isn't Paris, and this latrine excuse started uh, in Normandy. So maybe we could look at some of the press camps outside of Paris. Just before they got to Paris, this is uh, where they staged the, the French staged the, in their part of the invasion. It's a town called Rambouillet. Uh, and I asked somebody a number of times to, uh, a French person, a number of times to tell me how to pronounce that, and I'm sure I've still mucked it up. Um, but it's, uh, it was the press camp outside of, uh, outside of Paris. Uh, it was really tough duty, this particular press camp, because from it, you had to walk through these gardens to get to this chateau, which was where de Gaulle and Leclerc set up their camp. Uh, so you can see why nobody would want women to have to go through anything that brutal, right? <laughs> and this is the press camp in Normandy where that excuse started. It's called the Chateau de Voy. It was the first army press camp from shortly after D-Day until mid-July. I'll tell you, it's uh, now a lovely bed and breakfast. Uh, it's been kept mostly as it was during the war, so it's a fun place to stay. And I will tell you, it has lovely latrines, and women are allowed to use them. <laughs> uh, this is the dining room there. It was, though, the censor's room. So the male journalists would come back, um, have their stuff, uh, give, turn, write their copies, turn it over to the censors. The censors would, would censor it. The journalists would fix it up so that it all made sense and it would be wired off to the United States and be there literally within minutes. Um, so they would, so the men would actually literally come back from a hard day at war to this nice warm place where you can see I'm writing their copy. Um, the women journalists, by contrast, not being allowed at the press camp, instead worked. Anybody want to guess? Ah, 
mm, under apple trees when the weather wasn't dreadful and, as somebody said, intense when it was, which it mostly was pretty dreadful that summer. It was a cold, rainy summer. And when it wasn't cold and rainy, it was hot and rainy. Uh, the women's work went by pouch to England, and it was censored in England, where they had no uh, ability to fix the copy. And then whatever was left was stuck back together. Sometimes it made sense, sometimes it uh, was not quite the truth, and sometimes it was pure gibberish. Nonetheless, their byline goes back on it, and off it goes, again, by slow, by slow freight uh, to their editors uh, back in the United States. So, um, so it was just a, a whole different experience for the women covering the war. Uh, and, um, and as you can imagine, they weren't that happy about it. Uh, I'll tell you one of the things that happened. This, the woman on the far left there, her name is uh, Virginia Irwin, and she wrote for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. And one of the things that happened was that the job that the women journalists did in um, Normandy was so incredible that after Paris was liberated, the military looked up and said, well, why are we keeping them from the front? And so they started letting women go to the front for very short periods of time. And uh, Ginny Irwin was one of the, Virginia Irwin was one of the first people allowed to go to the front. Uh, she was given a three-day pass in September uh, to go to Normandy. Anybody want to guess when she came back? December. Three months later, um, there was actually a, a headquarters all points bulletin uh, calling for her release, and she uh, stayed out three months anyway, providing coverage from the front that her paper was happy to run, even though they didn't know where she was either. Um, oh, I'll tell you actually one other the the woman who's in the middle there, uh, her name is Dot Avery. Uh, she is you know one of the things that happened was these women were being pursued by the military police, right? and uh, sometimes taken into custody and kept from doing their job. So Dot Avery in the middle, uh, she was taken into uh, custody before uh, Paris was liberated and she was held at Rennes until after Paris was liberated, as many of the women journalists were. Uh, this is Helen Kirkpatrick. Uh, she actually broke the story of the war. She uh, went down from Switzerland to, to Freiburg, Germany, uh, when she heard uh, of the, the, uh, some rumors and found that the Nazis had reoccupied the, the Rhineland in open violation of the Treaty of Versailles. So she basically broke the, treaty of the, the news of the war. And then, when they were planning the Normandy invasion, uh, what they did was uh, they had one one person who was, uh, who was representing the newspapers for planning the press coverage. And she was so well respected as a correspondent that she was chosen as that one person to, to plan the, the correspondence. Uh, nonetheless, she was not allowed to go to cover the war. Uh, she was actually um, in England when the V1 uh, bombs started dropping. Do you guys know what those are? They're these robot bombs that would come over and, and then they would go very quiet. And then when they went quiet, you knew that you were in trouble because that means, meant that they were dropping down on you. Um, so she said, and it was a very, un, you know, when you talk about the bombing of London, that's what they're talking about. Um, so when that started, she went to Eisenhower and said, London wasn't safe anymore and she ought to be allowed to go to Normandy. And then he let her go. <laughs> this is Lee Miller. Um, she actually was a correspondent for Vogue magazine. So can you imagine that now? A war correspondent for Vogue magazine. Um, have any of you read the book, All the Light We Cannot See? Yes. 
a really lovely book, right? Well, so that uh, took place in a town called Samalo, where, where the girl is at the end of that book is Samalo, which if you read that book, you know, uh, was bombed to smithereens. Um, so Lee Miller went to, when she heard Samalo was uh, liberated, she went there uh, to take pictures. And what she found was, uh, it wasn't quite liberated yet. There were still Germans there, and they were still fighting in the streets. Um, so she did what any good journalist would do. Uh, she took out her camera and took pictures and put herself in, uh, in view of German guns even to take the pictures that she needed. She wrote about it, I had the clothes I was standing in, a couple dozen films, and an eider-down blanket roll. I was the only photographer for miles, and I now owned a private war. And her reward for her bravery? Anyone? Yeah, she was uh, taken into custody and held at Rennes and missed the liberation of Paris. So, um, she actually took some of the most memorable images of the war, uh, but the photo, photo for which she is probably most well known is this one taken of her by Life's David E. Sherman. It is Lee Miller bathing in Hitler's bathtub in music German, Munich, Germany. <laughs> I love this photo because, I mean, look at the boots, you know? <laughs> look at the boots. And the other thing is, look at the, the picture of Hitler in the back corner. <laughs> Now, I'm sure that, you know, they staged that little bit of it, uh, but still, it's a little, and, and, the, and the statue there is kind of, anyway. Um, this is Ruth Cowan. Uh, she was uh, one of the very first women sent to, uh, accredited to cover the war, and she was sent to um, Africa, where General Patton was in charge of the show. Uh, now, as you can imagine, Patton being Patton was not exactly thrilled with having a woman sent to uh, cover his war. Uh, and so he began grilling her with the idea of getting rid of her. Uh, and the first thing he asked her, one of the first things he asked her was what the first law of war was. And she answered, without missing a beat, you kill him before he kills you. And his response to that was, okay, she stays. And this is Dickie Chappelle. She's the last one I'll talk, the last journalist I'll talk about. I want you to know the camera there. That camera, it's called a speed graphic, and it's what many of the journalists in Normandy used. So that's what they lugged all over France, that particular camera. Uh, and if you have a copy of the book in front of you, you can look at the cover, and you can see a smaller, more discreet camera that would be very handy to carry around uh, Paris. Uh, it's actually a brownie from the 1920s that no you know, self-respecting photojournalist would be caught dead with. <laughs> and so when I got the cover, when I love the cover, I said to my, uh, to my editor, I love the cover, can we switch out the camera for the real camera? And you can see who won that battle. <laughs> Uh, so Dickie uh, actually was in the Pacific, and she uh, covered no man's land. She went in with the Marines to cover no man's land to get the wounded out and took pictures there. Um, she was there for five days before the Marines she was traveling with uh, confessed to her that um, they had been hiding her from MPs with arrest on site orders for her. Um, she took a couple really extraordinary pictures that were often shown together. Uh, they're called the Dying Marine. And the first uh, photo she took of him was in No Man's Land. Uh, and then the next day, you know, after they rescued him from No Man's Land, they gave him 14 pints of blood. Can you imagine that? 14 pints of blood. She took a picture of him the next day, and the two shown together uh, were shown together in newspapers throughout the U U.S., and they uh, spurred donations of rivers of blood. 
One of the reasons I like to tell that story is because, you know, sometimes we think of journalists as only recording the story and not making a difference in the story. But these journalists absolutely made a difference in the story. The work that they did was very important for marshalling the, the troops at home, and especially the women journalists, because the women at home really liked uh, reading the work of the women journalists, and the women at home were most of the people doing the work at the home front, so most many of the people reading the, the paper, the coverage. Um, Chappelle uh, received the 1963 photo Photograph of the Year Award for a coverage of Vietnam where, and for this next shot, unlike the shot of me in the library, I really do want to warn you, if you don't like unpleasant photos, you might uh, close your eyes and I'll tell you when to open them. But um, she stepped on a landmine there on November 4th, 1965, and was the first uh, female correspondent to be killed in action. This is Henry Hewitt's photo of Chappelle receiving last rites where she was. So, Paris, right? Uh, when we think of France, and of Paris in particular, we think of something like this, which if you don't know, how many of you have been to Paris? How many of you want to go and haven't gotten to yet? <laughs> <laughs> I recommend you go home and make tickets now. <laughs> um, so this is the Hotel de Ville. It's the Paris Town Hall. Pretty swanky, right? Uh, and it's where the race for Paris opens. The book opens with a line about the full moon rising over the Hotel de Ville. Uh, so I want you to notice that full moon rising over the Hotel de Ville. Very nice, right? My husband and I, the night that the full moon was rising over the Hotel de Ville when we were last in Paris, we went out at 11 when the sun set. It sets very late in the summer in Paris. And then at 12, and then at 1, and then at 2. And uh, finally, somewhere around 2.30, I think it was, the full moon finally rose. And it rose... I want to trip over anything. over the tree to the right of the Hotel de Ville. <laughs> and my choice was either to change the opening line to the full moon rising over the tree to the right of the Hotel de Ville, or to borrow a picture from the internet. So this is a borrowed picture from the internet. Um, so uh, we think of that as Paris, or we think of this, which is actually a photo taken by Lee Miller the winter after Paris was liberated. I don't know how well you can see it here, but that's the faint, uh, faintly the Eiffel Tower in the background. This is the Eiffel Tower in a snowstorm. Uh, and that's certainly what some of the women journalists saw in Paris, uh, but it's also an awfully romantic view of war. And the truth is that you know, before the women uh, covered Paris, this visitor, that's Hitler in the middle there, uh, had uh, come to see the Eiffel Tower. They actually, the French resistance actually cut the cables in the Eiffel Tower so that Hitler couldn't go up in it. And it wasn't repaired until 1946. So I think that's kind of a nice story, right? Um, so, and, and the women journalists who covered Paris, uh, you know, when we think of Paris being liberated, we imagine Charles de Gaulle walking down the Champs-Élysées and through the Arc de Triomphe and it's all beautiful and the crowds are cheering and, you know, throwing roses and everything. I'm gonna tell you, that was the day after Paris was liberated. The day Paris was liberated, it looked like this. Um, yes, as the troops came in, especially on the outskirts of Paris, the uh, people did greet them. People came out into the streets even though there were still fighting, even though there were snipers. So it's a, it was a kind of an amazingly magical moment, the, the liberation of Paris. And if you read anything about it, um, it's, just, it's just really worth reading. Um, this is actually a photo taken of, uh, by Robert Capa, the very famous photojournalist, the day after the liberation. Again, you can see um, these people are in, that's the Hotel de Ville, where the moon was rising, over the tree to the right of the Hotel de Ville. Um, and uh, they came to see de Gaulle, to hear de Gaulle speak, and there was a sniper, a German sniper, in the towers of Notre Dame, shooting down on the, on the thing. So it was not safe even after Paris was liberated. Um, 
Uh, this is actually a photo that Lee Miller took uh, in Normandy. Anybody want to guess what all that uh, smoke is? I tell you, never guess what I'm going to tell you. Uh, it is actually uh, napalm. This is the first visual record of the use of napalm. And I think we dropped it, I'm sorry to say. Um, Lee Miller also took this, which is uh, in a field, uh, field hospital operating room. Uh, and this is where I'm going to warn you, this is the last time I'm going to warn you, if you don't like pretty pictures, if you don't like ugly pictures, look away from this one. Uh, Lee Miller was one of the first into Buchenwald where she took this photo. Okay, you can look again unless you're a foodie. <laughs> this is what they uh, ate, mostly. Uh, you can notice uh, chopped ham and eggs in that tin there. I'm told that that was the tastiest. So you have to wonder why if you know, the women could stomach something like this uh, and chose to go to war, they weren't allowed in the press camps. It's not like they signed up for a glamorous life. They knew what they were getting into. Indeed, here's a peek at the dirty underwear of being a female photojournalist. Wool long johns because, as I said, it was cold and rainy. Uh, and they washed uh, their own clothes, washed it in water in their helmets, uh, which is the way they washed their hair and the way they washed their bodies, too. Uh, they hung their laundry out to dry on the sunny side of their tents when there was sun, which there wasn't much, and when there wasn't sun, they wore the clothes that they had without washing them. So, no doubt the rules keeping women from covering the front were meant to protect them, but what happened actually was that because they wanted to do their job and they wanted to cover the war, they often went AWOL and went out uh, anyway. But without access to the information from the press camps, they didn't always even know if they were in Allied territory or German territory. And so the, the end effect of those uh, rules was that they often put themselves in more danger than they would have if they had not been um, confined by the rules meant to protect them. I suppose it'll be no surprise to you to learn that Paris was, in fact, eventually liberated. Uh, so it's not to spoil the read for you, I won't tell you whether my particular journalists make it or whether they end up with those others in Rennes or if indeed they might have died before they got to Paris. Um, but I will tell you that I did make it to Paris. <laughs> I'd like to tell you that that's the final manuscript of the Race for Paris in my lap, but that is actually uh, the manuscript for the Wednesday Daughters, my, <laughs> my novel before this. Uh, and that's a long story that I will spare you. Uh, I made it uh, not once, but twice per month each time. And you know, perhaps the saddest part of uh, having this book come out is that I've lost my excuse to go to Paris and call it work. Uh, but yeah, I'm thinking about setting another novel in Paris. It's such an amazing city. Um, and one, but of course, one of the reasons I went was to do research. And one of the things that happens when you do research is you find out all, all sorts of things that you never would have imagined. Um, this is that. This is the view of that uh, press camp in Normandy. And I had a whole scene set there, and it's this beautiful scene. And my character was sitting in that turret, which I'd seen pictures of on the internet, uh, looking out over a field. There was no moat, which there is now, but a moat is so much more evocative, right? And uh, it turns out from talking to the guy who owns the place, who was born there right after the war and whose uh, grandmother owned the place during the war, that the field, which was mine, just an empty field, actually had cows in it during the war. So I added my cows to the scene. And I realized after I turned it all in and it was done and you know, there's nothing you can do about, about changing it, I thought, hmm, I put the cows there and he sees the cows, but does he smell the cows? 
I'm not sure if he smells the cows. But you know, there's so many things that you, when you do research, you find out all sorts of things that you never, I mean, so often you can't make it up as good as it is uh, really in, in real life. Uh, for example, um, the, you know, it rained a lot in, in Normandy, and the photographers had film, that they were spent film that they had to keep dry. So, you know how they did it? They took condoms, put the film in them, and tied them up like balloons, and carried them that way until they could get them to some place to be developed. So, I, so that's in the book. You know, I never, I, I would like to say that I'm creative enough to think up something like that, but I'm not. So, so often what you learn is more real than the real. Okay, so again, journalism, writing and photography, war, friendship, an underdog story, a love story. Uh, who doesn't love a love story, especially during war? So much more dramatic when one, when one of your lovers might die, right? Um, but really, the heart of this story is two professional women, neither of whom is a mother. Uh, but oddly, this book turns out to be, and this was the, really the biggest surprise to me, also a book about motherhood. I'll let you read to figure out how that one happens. But it's mostly a story about two women who want to report the war and their struggle to do so. Um, they may or may not make it to this point, the Louvre. I tell you, if they do, that they will not see that pyramid, because it was not there during the war. It was actually built during my lifetime. And the first time I went to Paris, there was no pyramid there, so that's kind of interesting. Uh, but I'm going to leave you here, because who doesn't love a picture of the Louvre at night? Um, I want to say that, uh, I'm going to take questions, but I want to say before I do that, so that I don't forget to say it, that um, it was a real, real pleasure and honor to learn about the women who covered the war. Um, the novel comes from a, a, a place of a lot of admiration for them and a good deal of awe, and I just hope that I've done them justice. And with that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our club book audience for questions and comments for Megway Clayton and her work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member wondering what the publication process was like for the race for Paris. Um, so as I said, this was uh, 15 years in the making, and this is part of the reason why. Um, so I, I, I wrote my first novel, The Language of Light, and then I um, started writing this one. It was the second novel I ever started writing. I set it aside to write The Wednesday Sisters because that was a book that kind of came to me in a burst as this one was not behaving, uh, and that one behaved very nicely. <laughs> it just like wrote itself in you know a matter of months, and then it was a little while to get it published. But uh, but then it was that one was published and and took off very quickly. It was totally changed my literary life, and I'm forever grateful for Random House for doing that. But so even before it was published, Random House was really happy with it, and they said, uh, would I like to do another novel, and why don't I just give them an idea, and they'd give me some money to go off and write it. And I said, sure, that sounds like a deal, <laughs> you know, knowing my next novel is going to be published. Uh, and so they said, how about some ideas? And I said, I've got this idea for a World War II novel. And there was a slow pause, and then my, my publisher said, well, uh, you know, I think doing something strictly historical uh, right now uh, would, uh, you know, well, you probably need to do something contemporary like the Wednesday Sisters, and then we can consider it something uh, historical. And I thought, oh, but the Wednesday Sisters is historical, <laughs> you know, it's the 1960s. But I didn't say that. I said, okay, here are some other ideas, and they, uh, and one of them was uh, the Four Miss Bradwells, and 
uh, and I went off and, and wrote that. And they published it. And, and before they published it, they were really happy with it. And they said, oh, this is working really well. How about if we give you, you know, some more money and another contract, and you go off and write something else? And I said, I have this World War II novel. <laughs> and they said, Maybe not quite yet, maybe for the next novel. And so we talked about what to do, and one of my proposals was literally three words, The Wednesday Daughters, and they said, we'll take that one. Uh, and so they gave me some money, and I went off and wrote it. And, uh, and before it was published, they said, this is working really well. How about uh, another novel? And I said, I've got this World War. They were like, no, not the World War II novel, Meg, really, not the World War II. Um, and so I said, OK. But they really, I, I changed the, I had only pitched it as a concept. I hadn't pitched the manuscript at all. But so I, cha I changed the title to The Girls of Paris, knowing they would like, like that title. And they said, oh, but we love this title. How about a contemporary novel with this title? And so I said, sure. And we agreed mostly on terms. And we were haggling over ebook rights. Uh, and I, what happened was I actually, um, my, my finger had an unfortunate uh, uh, meeting with a paring knife. And uh, it's all grown back now. I have a very nice, it turns out they can put little stuff in to make you grow, grow skin. I know gross, right? Um, but, uh, but I couldn't type for six weeks. So since I couldn't type for six weeks, I pulled out this manuscript, which I had been working on in the spaces every time I had a, a you know, every time I had a space, because I just love this book. Um, and I had changed the point of view a couple of drafts beforehand, and so I read it this time, and I, you know, every time I read it, you can see my first novel, the part that I read, it's marked up because I had to edit it before I could read it. I cannot stop editing. Um, but I felt this one was basically done. So I, um, I, I, I actually sent the whole manuscript uh, at the same time to my editor and my agent, which, you know, made my agent probably go apoplectic because you're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to send it to your agent first, right? But my editor read it and said, well, We'll publish this if you want to, but we would really rather have The Girls of Paris, the contemporary novel that you're going to write, and why don't you just sign that contract and give us that novel? And my agent said, this is the best thing you have ever written. She said, she was a huge fan of the Wednesday Sisters. That's where I came to her. We joined forces. And, uh, and she said, to be honest, Meg, I thought you would never write a book that I love more than the Wednesday Sisters. But she said, now this feels like the Wednesday Sisters was just practice for this book. And she said, but I don't, I don't want it to be published by somebody who's not enthusiastic about it because it's just really hard to get a book um, published, uh, published well, sold well, if you don't have a publishing team behind that. And I understand that now. Um, so, so she said, let me very quietly slip it to two editors I know. If uh, I'll do it, we won't, we won't tell anybody anything. Uh, we'll see uh, if they like it or not. If there's some encouragement there, then we can decide what to do. Uh, and if there uh, isn't, then uh, you can sign that contract with Random House, and we'll all be, live happily ever after. Uh, and so I said, OK. And she quietly sent it to two editors on a Friday afternoon. And by Sunday, we had a preemptive offer, which was more money than Random House was going to pay me for the novel that I hadn't yet written. Um, and the uh, end result of that is that I changed publishing houses, which made me very nervous because my Random House team was absolutely lovely to me. Uh, but I ended up working with an editor who was totally extraordinary. She's been in the business for a long, long time. And I learned more in editing this book with her than I have in like the entire 20 years of writing before that. Uh, it, I feel like it just took me to a different level of writing. and. I am so grateful for that. And I'm, my agent's name is Marley Russoff, and I'm so grateful to Marley because I'm going to tell you, it was a stupid thing what she did. You know, I mean, in, in this environment, in this publishing environment, I'm going to tell you that you know, 999 out of 1,000 agents would have said, 
sign the contract, take the money, get rid of the other book, you know? And Marley didn't do that. She believed in this book and she believed, uh, she believes in really good literature and uh, so it's a happy ending story because as I think I said at the start, it's now a national bestseller, yay! <laughs> Our next question is how Clayton's research process is conducted. Was she able to talk with some of the women journalists her book is based around? The truth is that I've been working on this for so long. <laughs> some of them probably were alive. <laughs> but I was not yet established enough to, you know, when they were, to, to knock on their door and say, hey, will you talk to me? Um, uh, I would do that now uh, if they were still around, but they're not. But one of the things that happened was um, the, I mean, there were a lot of, uh, as you say, uh, uh, you can go back and look at their reporting. Uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, journal journals and, and things like that, first-person accounts of what they're doing. In some cases, like with Lee Miller, I could um, get back to the original articles that she wrote and submitted before they were shortened down for the magazine, which is really fun to see You know where it started and where it ended up from a writer's standpoint. Um, but then the other thing that happened was in the early 1980s, uh, a really brilliant um, woman named Margot Knight had the idea that, who was a journalist, had the idea that these women were dying and their stories were not captured because they had been, you know, often they left uh, journalism after the war was over and went back to normal lives, families or whatever, or uh, even when they didn't, you know, they just are not as well known as the men. Uh, so she had the brilliant idea to do uh, a series of interviews with them. And so the Women's Press Corps, she orchestrated the Women's Press Corps doing three-day interviews with uh, I think pretty much every journalist, woman journalist who was still alive, and you can find them online now. And so that was just, it's all, you know, that's all retrospective. So you're looking at what they remember as opposed to at the time. Um, but it was really a great store of information, especially the stories about, you know, what happened. And like, you know, one of the things that happens in the book is my character, uh, Jane, uh, she dyes her hair. You know, she, when she goes and she's sent off to war, she says it's going to be a new life, a new her, and so she decides to dye her hair blonde, uh, thinking she's going to London and not realizing she's going to end up in Normandy, where, of course, there is no hair dye. And the way that I came to that story is because Ruth Cowan, that woman who was in the helmet in the first time, she's probably wearing that helmet to, helmet to cover her roots. <laughs> <laughs> so you get little bits like that that you never would have thought of. Um, but yeah, a lot of uh, you know uh, Martha Gellhorn's letters uh, are now collected now uh, with a, in a collection that's edited by uh, Caroline Moorhead. They're just a fabulous look at her life and uh, at her time, you know, some of them are her time during war, and she, her voice comes through in her letters, and it's really amazing. So uh, when I look at, you know, email now, I'm gonna tell you that I never write anything in the email that's half as interesting as every single letter that Martha Gellhorn wrote, so I think that's a loss. Our last question of the night comes from an audience member who asked Clayton if she knows what will happen to her characters before she sits down to write a novel. I think of uh, writing a novel as a lot, a lot like running a marathon. And part of the reason I like to say this is because I have actually won, ran one marathon and that allows me to say it. <laughs> I'm very proud of it. It's one of the things I keep on my desk is my marathon medal. Um, but uh, when I went to run a marathon, I didn't, uh, I didn't you know, get up one day never having run and said, okay, I'm gonna run a marathon this morning. I started running a little bit and then I ran more and then I ran more and then I could run a marathon. And then I ran one and I said, Ooh, God, I'm never doing that again. <laughs> Which is about how I feel about novel writing right about now. But, <laughs> uh, but so I uh, start anywhere I can. I don't feel like I have to have the whole story to, or any of the story. I often start 
my bag is around here somewhere, but I often start in my journal. I pretty much start everything in my journal because it's just my journal. Uh, it's not meant for anybody else to consume. Indeed, my best friend uh, who lives in New Hampshire, and I live in Palo Alto, California, has directions upon my demise, if I predecease her, to get on the next plane, fly directly to my office in Palo Alto, and uh, take my uh, journals and burn them. <laughs> um, but that's very liberating, because if you're writing something that you don't have to worry about anybody seeing, you can write whatever you want. And one of the things I find is if I just sit down and write, then the stuff that I'm interested in kind of bubbles up. The stuff that I'm interested in exploring bubbles up. And so what I try to do is I try to get enough of a start to think it's going to be something, and then I sit back and figure out what it's going to be. So that means I need to have you know, a grip on the characters, and I need to have usually about three chapters. Um, then what I do is I sit down and I brain, brainstorm. You know, what if, what if, what if. I take, anybody use those little three by five note cards when you're in high school? Am I showing my age here? Um, I take them, literally a stack of them, and I go, just ideas, just brainstorming ideas. Okay, maybe this happens, maybe this happens, maybe this happens. I, I write an idea, I throw it down before I can double think it, you know, and go, oh, that's the stupidest idea that ever happened. Um, and I just do ideas like that, and then I throw them down. In cases like this, uh, you know, I'm doing some research as I'm doing all that, but I'm not necessarily researching the whole book before I start writing, because if you have to research the book before you start writing, uh, I'm me, I love the research, I hate the writing. <laughs> I don't hate the writing, but I, I, I struggle with first draft. First draft is very hard for me. Um, so I just, uh, I just write. I just uh, sit down and write. And I take, so I take all those cards, I try to have, you know, I see what I've got, I try to put them in some order that maybe will look like a story arc, and then I go forward and I do research and I outline and I write. But throughout the whole process I'm writing because if I stop writing, then it becomes really hard to, um, once you stop, once I stop writing first draft, if I, if I look back at it, I go, oh my god, this sucks, <laughs> you know, and I'll stop writing it. So I just have to get through a first draft. And then once you get through a first draft, you go, well, it sucks, but it's a first draft, so, you know, then I can make something of it. And so much of the writing is, uh, is in the rewriting. You know, there's a, a great Ernest Hemingway quote, which is, um, first drafts are, and it's a, a, a naughty word that starts with the letter S and ends with the letter T and has a version of hello in the middle. And it's true, uh, I, I, for me at least, my first drafts are not a pretty thing. Uh, I don't even show them to my husband. Um, but they, once I have a first draft, then I, I love revising. So I can revise for mm, 15 years. <laughs> uh, but, I don't, but I usually know, so I usually know by the time I'm done with that outlining thing, things like the ending. Because I think it's much easier to write to an ending. Um, I don't necessarily stay with that ending. Uh, sometimes you find out things, like I'll tell you, the, one of the things I found in research uh, was, uh, I will just tell you, since you've already read it, for anybody who have uh, already read it, I found some caves. And you'll know what I'm talking about if you've read the book. And that did um, change the course of the book a little bit, because uh, I was very uh, moved by what happened in those caves, and I wanted to explore that in, in the novel, and so I needed to um, work that in. Uh, so, so certainly things, things change. Um, also, you know, the ending might change even, but I find that if I have an outline, it's like, you know, you're going on a road trip, and if you have a map, well, then you have the main roads, and if you want to explore off on some side road, it might take you to a really interesting place, and if it doesn't, you can just go back to the main road and keep going on, on your path. So that's, that's the way I write. It works for me. I, honestly, my advice to anybody who wants to write is, you know, do whatever works for you, because 
people go about it in all sorts of different ways. I know, you know, one of my best writer pals, she loves first draft and she hates revising. And she's always, when she's done with the first draft, she's sure it's brilliant. <laughs> you know, and I think, really? I wish I had that. <laughs> but, you know, people do it in all different ways. All right, well, thank you all so much for coming. And uh, thank you all who have read or are reading. I really appreciate it. This book, as I said, means a ton to me. And um, I'm glad to have you. Thanks. That wraps up our Chanhassen Library event with Megway Clayton in Carver County. Make sure to catch our next Club Book event with Mitchell Zukoff at 7 p.m. Thursday, September 24th at Washington County's R.H. Stafford Library in Woodbury. Mitchell Zukoff is a prolific historian and veteran journalist. His most recent and most important book project, 13 Hours, is the definitive account of what happened on September 11th 2012 when terrorists in Libya attacked the U.S. State Department compound in Benghazi. Meet Mitchell Zukoff, get your questions answered and books signed. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, Find us using the handle ClubBookMN. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to those who make Clubbook possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, Aroundtown Agency, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Clubbook. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.